for our attention, you know, what, you know, wanting us to go here and go there and focus on this and watch this movie and come over here and we got this going over there. And, you know, just to be able to come here and say, no, we're going to get into God's Word. That's what we're going to do and make it a priority. And, and you guys are, are a rare breed because there's not a lot of this going on <laughs> in our city and in our nation today. And so um, I commend you guys on that because, you know, uh, where you can find life and, and hope, and it's through the Lord Jesus as we dig into his word. So we are continuing our study through the book of Jeremiah. If you need a Bible, Richard's up with a couple of Bibles in his hands. Jeremiah chapter 11 and 12 tonight. Then uh, next week we have our kids program for which they're practicing downstairs for. And then uh, the following week is Christmas. Crazy already, so... Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Thank you for your word. Uh, thank you, Lord, for uh, the love and grace that you show to us, your mercy. Uh, they're new every morning. We praise you for that. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word, knowing that we will not walk away disappointed. Anytime that we're in your word, Lord, we know that you are, are willing and ready to speak to our hearts, and we thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this is the, uh, uh, Jeremiah's fourth message or word from the Lord. It's been suggested that this message date, dates back to 621 B.C., six years after Jeremiah began his ministry. It was then, if you recall, that the temple renovations began under Josiah and the book of the law was rediscovered there in the temple. Jeremiah had been called to deliver the word of the Lord. We know that at times it's been very difficult for Jeremiah as Jeremiah would weep over the things the Lord would have him to say. But, but Jeremiah would be obedient, saying the things he needed to say, even if the Jews weren't willing to listen. Now, chapter 10 concluded the message the Lord gave to Jeremiah that Jeremiah was to give at the temple gate. Now, in chapter 11, 11 the Lord has a new message that Jeremiah is to give to the people. And this concerns their, their broken covenant that they made with God. Look now at verse, verses 1 through 5. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant, and speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt, from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. And I answered and said, So be it, Lord. This word covenant. It's repeated five times in the first eight verses. Again, it refers to the discovery of the portion of, of God's word by the high priest Elkiah when repairs were being made in the temple. According to Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 24 through 27, there was to be a copy of the book of the law set beside the Ark of the Covenant there in the temple. Listen to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 31, uh, 24 through 27. So it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. For I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. If today, while I'm yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? Prophetically, 
Moses knew this day would come when they would be rebellious towards the covenant with the Lord. And, and so he said, man, put the word there so that you would not go down this path. But here the day, the day was. Now again, King Josiah had the word read to him. He was struck with grief and terror, certain that the Lord was furious with him and his people for their disobedience. And, and so immediately Josiah set out to make things right. He called for the elimination of, of pagan worship, called for the people to obey the ancient covenant of the Lord. He, he turned the land you know, tearing down the pagan shrines. And, and for the first time in a long time, they celebrated the Passover. Now, most of the scholars agree that the portion of God's word that was rediscovered was a portion of Deuteronomy. Again, restating the covenant God made with Israel at Mount Sinai when he delivered the Jews from 400 years of slavery to Egypt. Now, this covenant consists of, of three components. First, it's the, the law or commandments, moral, civil, civil and ceremonial Second, they had the, the sacrificial system. For when they broke the law, then there was the sacrifices and the priests were to offer them in the tabernacle to, to house them in. And third, was the blessings and curses. God would reward the nations obedience with great blessings, but he punished their rebellious, uh, and rebellion and disobedience with curses. Now, of course, God preferred to bless them. That's why it was God's heart to, to bless the people. He wanted them to, to establish, be established in a land flowing with milk and honey, it was the people of Judah that insisted on the curses. They had a choice, sweet or sour, and, and Judah chose sour. <laughs> Rather than milk and honey, Judah would taste the sour and the bitters. And so Jeremiah's response in verse 5 was, So be it, Lord. Amen. He, he didn't argue with God or try to talk out of it or even plead for God to hold off the judgment of his people. He just accepted it. So be it. Guilty as charged. I think of when uh, my wife and I were first married. And on my, on my day off, I would take her to work. And, and one morning on my way back from taking her, I totally missed the stop sign. I mean, it's a, a little residential area and, 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 you know, I just blew right, right past it. And immediately the lights came on, got pulled over and, and I explained, I just lived right over there. I just woke up. I just took my wife to work. Uh, I'm, I'm half asleep. I'm sorry. I will not do it again. Uh, yeah, I'm so sorry. He let me off. It was great. It was awesome. Till the next morning, and I accidentally ran that same stop sign, and the same officer was right there waiting for me, and the lights came on, and I, I didn't argue with them. I just said, guilty as charged, give me the ticket, I just accepted it. You know, I mean, what else can you do? You know, it happened, and this is what Jeremiah was doing. You know, saying, hey, guilty as charged. And that really is showing a true act of repentance. I'm sure at first he pleaded for mercy, but when God issued the ticket, he accepted it and prepared to endure its punishment. So be it. See, before the people found the book of the law, the people did not know the law. They weren't applying the law. They didn't hear the law. But now they know it. And because they know it, now it's their responsibility to, to obey it. And God says, curses the man who doesn't obey the words of this covenant. I have to agree with J. Vernon McGee's comment on this. He says, quote, I said many times that I would rather be a heathen in some dark corner of the earth, bowing down before an idol, than to be a member of a church where the pastor faithfully preaches the word of God and to have done nothing in response to it. May I say I have more respect for that heathen man and God may yet bring the gospel to him, but that church member who has earned the, heard the gospel and rejected it, God will certainly judge him. So we see the difference there. We see, you know, that, that, that uh, now that they have the word, now that they have the law, you know, they needed to obey it. Look at verse 6. 
Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. So here the Lord saying, I've written down blessings or cursings for you, depending if you obeyed the law or not, but it's clear you've chosen to go down the path of cursings. Again, when the law was discovered, we know that Josiah made the people hear the law and even made the leaders promise to obey. Listen to Second Chronicles chapter 34, verse 33. Thus Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country that belonged to the children of Israel and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord God of their fathers. And I see a couple of things there that, that for Josiah showed that this would be a problem and why the leaders still turned their back on the Lord. First it says that Josiah made the people serve the Lord. He made them serve the Lord. Apparently their compliance wasn't voluntary or born out of love for God and His Word. And secondly, it says there in Second Chronicles that, that they followed the Lord all the days of Josiah's life. That is, as soon as Josiah was done, they were done. And they went right back to their wickedness. It's been said, convert an enemy against his will and he will be an enemy still. And it's true spiritually. Conversion that, that's coerced is not a true conversion. Mind you of a story of a little boy that was jumping up and down on his mom's new furniture and a mom ordered, son, sit down. He reluctantly complied and he sat there with a scowl on his face. Later she asked him what uh, he was thinking and the little guy replied, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still jumping on the inside. In the same way, you can't legislate or mandate a spiritual conversion. Pressuring a person to make a decision won't stick. A person has to willingly come. They, they can't be pushed. They, they have to willingly desire to turn from their wicked ways and follow Christ. You know, it's been said if you can argue someone into salvation, they can be argued out of it. Well, verse 9, we read, And the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They've turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. And they've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they, do, they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense. But they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. For according to the number of your cities were your gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars to burn incense to Baal. So burning incense to, to the Canaanite god Baal figures prominently really in these remaining verses. And the interesting, the, the interesting thing about Baal, it seems like that name was kind of a, a catch-all name uh, or title for, for a number of false gods. See, Baal derives its, its word from a word meaning master. So he wasn't just one particular god or idol. It was the name, of a, the, name the culture gave the, their particular god or idol because it was supposedly their master. So this opens up really our understanding of how today we are still being affected by Baal. 
Even though we, we don't call it that or have a particular idol representing it, whoever or whatever we yield our, ourselves to as a master, if, it's, if it isn't Jesus Christ, then it becomes Baal. Paul wrote in Romans 6.16, Do you not know that to whom you pre- present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? If it's not the Lord, then whoever or whatever we yield ourselves to as a master is who you obey. It could be, it could be a passion. It could be a possession. It could be a person. But whoever or whatever, is, if it's not the Lord, if the Lord is not first, if he's not master of our, our lives, if something else is, then it's a bell. And it's a conspiracy in that the devil is the one who started us thinking that we could get out from under our God as, as our master. He told Eve, who, who sold Adam on the idea that we could each be his God. In other words, we didn't need God as our master, but could be our own masters. And that lie plunged all of creation into the fall. So how do you know if you're a part of the bell conspiracy? Well, for sure, if you're sinning, you're a conspirator. If you decide to let something or someone else or some person or passion or possession be your master instead of God, you may fall into that category. Perhaps you're, you're in love. Is, is it biblical love? Is it a relationship, for example, with a non-believer? Then it's a bell for you because God as master warns against it in his word. And, and if you're ignoring his word, then that means you're following the dictates of your own heart. Listen, even something that seems good can take the place of God and be a bell. I mean, something you supposedly do for him in his name. I've seen men over the years get so involved in ministry that they've sacrificed their own families uh, uh, along the way. They've made ministry their God. And it comes back to blessings and cursings. Put the Lord first, blessings. Put anything else first in your life, and I assure you there's going to be nothing but trouble. So then the Lord says in verse 10, They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, who refused to hear my words, and they've gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape, and though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Again, I think of Noah and the flood. I mean, there was that point where that, where that door shut and judgment was coming. And it didn't matter how much they cried out. They knocked on that door. Let us in, let us in. It was too late. God is long-suffering for us, not willing that any should perish. But there will come a time when it's too late and the door will be shut and judgment will come. Now drop down. We already looked at verses 13. Uh, let's look, drop, drop down to verse 14. So the Lord says, So do not pray for this people. Or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. Three times in Jeremiah, God tells the prophet to not pray for the people. Don't even waste your breath. I mean, the people's, their their fate was fixed. I mean, that's a scary thing to hear from the mouth of God, to be beyond prayer. Now, the good news is that God has not said that about you and me, (laughs) praise the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. The grace that is in Christ abounds to sinners who will turn from their sin. Roman 10 tells us that salvation is as near to each of us as, a, as a, the lip of our tongue. We, we don't have to climb to, to the heights to bring Christ down or plunge to the depths to bring him up. He's as, as near as the tip of your tongue. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans 10.9. What a joy. Verse 10, or rather verse 15. What is my beloved to do in my house? Having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you when you do evil, then you rejoice. Let me read that in the New Living Translation. What right do my beloved people have to come to my temple when they have done so many immoral things? 
Can their vows and sacrifices prevent their destruction? They actually rejoice in doing evil. Again, if your heart's not changed, if you love sin and continue in it, not willing to change, then he said, well, then why are you showing up at church? Why, why are you showing up, you know, in, in the temple there? He goes on, verse 16. The Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are broken. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger and offering incense to Baal. God here presented two pictures of his people here that revealed just how ridiculous their, their religious faith really turned into. He compares them to a, a worshiper in the temple in verse 15, all the while they're sinning, and he compares them to a tree with broken branches in verse 17. In other words, why are you going into the temple and worshiping for branches are broken and you truly don't want to have anything to do with me? And what, what, does it make, what makes this even more disheartening is the Lord says, I called the nation my beloved, my beloved, reminding them of his love for them and their marriage contract, how unfaithful they had been to him. My beloved, you were supposed to be faithful. You were supposed to, to, to have, we're supposed to have this marriage relationship. For those of you Star Wars fans, it's like in episode 3 when Obi-Wan says to Anakin, you were supposed to be the chosen one. Bad example, but I just thought of it when I read it. <laughs> Lord says, we had a marriage contract. We, we had this binding contract. Their worship in the temple should have been an expression of their true love to him, but it's dead. Instead, it's just turned out to be a, an exercise in futility. And by them offering their sacrifices, it was not going to stop God's judgment. I mean, they're just engaging in all sorts of wickedness, thinking it's okay because, well, we offered up sacrifices, which made it even more wicked. And when that happens, when, when worship becomes wickedness and people rejoice in sinning, then the light has turned to darkness. It's dark. Jesus put it this way in Matthew six twenty-two through 24. Your eyes like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Well, as Jeremiah has been faithful to the Lord and saying exactly what he's been told to say, sooner or later, those living in darkness, those people are going to say, you know what, we don't like what you're saying. They're going to react. Such was as the case. Look now at verse 18. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. So the people responded to the things Jeremiah was saying by saying, Let's wipe him out. Let's take him out. Let's kill him. I mean, think about this. Think about Jeremiah hearing this. Now imagine it for a moment in our own lives. Imagine your, friend, your family, your friends, people you hang out with, wanting to kill you for no other reason than just for speaking the words of God in the house of God. Isn't that what happened to Jesus? When he returned to his hometown in Nazareth, certain Jews wanted to kill him over the message that he spoke. And they pushed Jesus to the edge of the, the, the precipice and they wanted to throw him off. And the Jews from the Nazareth, they were so proud that they couldn't admit that Jesus could be the Son of God, the Messiah. 
Oh, this, this is a guy, you know, you know, even his brothers were saying, having a hard time believing. I mean, how could this kid they played with in the sandbox be the king of glory that made the sand on the seashore? You know, why could God choose the, you know, uh, him and not one of us? What made him so special? In fact, in John 4.44, the Lord responded to the rejection of his family and friends by saying, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Basically, it's hard to get a hearing in your own hometown. I think even today, some of our worst opposition arises from people that you know the best. Hometown harassment still you know, is a problem for followers of Jesus. You go home and, and you're around people that don't know the Lord and, and you start sharing with them, you know, and, and then you get it over and over again. You know, uh, you know, flesh book. I mean, Facebook, you know, they got that on there as well. You know, and you say something on there and all of a sudden they get this, this response. Or, oh, you know, and people you love, people you know, now all of a sudden you're like this enemy to them. I think it, sometimes it's that, that type of persecution that catches us off guard. We expect it from strangers, but we hope our friends are going to rejoice with us and be happy for us. When they don't, it's disturbing and defeating. We need to remember what Jesus said, Matthew ten thirty four. He said, do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. See, the gospel is the most unifying force on earth when it's accepted. But man, it's the most divisive force on earth when it's, when it's rejected. Matthew 10, Jesus went on to say, and we looked at this a little last Sunday, Matthew 10, 35-37 said, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jeremiah is experiencing this. You know, coming to Christ may mean saying goodbye to old friends. Former associates. Allegiances change when you come to Jesus. Families get redefined. Friends are seen in a new light. I think of Jesus' words in Luke, or Luke, yeah, Luke 8, 21, when uh, Jesus looked around at his followers and said, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Now, that doesn't mean it hurt, doesn't hurt when you, know, when, when you have to face people who, who you once trusted turn on you, and, and it, it hurts. But we have to remember that Jesus told us this stuff would happen. Matthew five eleven and 12. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So over the next couple of weeks as we get around family that don't know the Lord and we get to talking with one another and you say something about the Lord, expect, you know, you're not going to go, that's awesome, that's great, I like what you're saying. Expect that you may get something like, you know, some sort of persecution. It's an old adage that goes, there'll be no crowns in heaven for those who have no scars on earth. Prophet Jeremiah experienced this kind of persecution more than most, but the Lord says, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. Look at verse 20. But, O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have revealed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by your hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them. For I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punish, punishment. In other words, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Those guys are picking on you. I'm going to pick on them. I mean, they're threatening him. 
Oh, you better stop with the stuff that you're saying or you're, you're going to die. And, and Jeremiah says, oh, Lord, you know, you need to do what's right. Vengeance on them. And the Lord says, you bet your vengeance will come. Jeremiah asked for it. He got it. And then God promises Jeremiah that there'll be no survivors among his enemies. And when the Babylonians invade, judgment will fall hard on Anathoth that the men of Anathoth will not be spared. Now, Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And here's what the Lord's doing. He's taking uh, vengeance. He's avenging, and, and uh, the Lord does that. Now, on a side note, if Marvel movies obeyed this verse, would have no Avengers and no Marvel movies, I, I'm just saying, but that's another side note. But Chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you, yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? I mean, you got to laugh a little bit at Jeremiah's tact, or attempted tact. He says, God... I know that you're righteous in all that you do, but I've got a question. Some of the stuff that you do, I don't understand. I mean, you don't always make sense. Yet, let me talk to you about your judgments. And then he asks this age-old questions. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? I think it's a question that, that we've all asked at one point in our Christian walk. If God is just, if God is fair and good, then why do the wicked prosper and his people get treated unfairly? If God is in control, then why does he allow his followers to suffer and the wicked to get away with their crimes? Well, I think the quick and simple answer is because there's sin in the world and we live in a fallen world and one day that will not be the case. This life is the worst that it'll ever be for us as believers and it's going to be the, it's the best that it'll ever be for the, for the non-Christian, the wicked. Now understand, Jeremiah's responding to what was happening at that time in his life. See, on the political landscape, as we come into chapter 12... Jeremiah had seen some dramatic changes. The godly king, Josiah, was now dead. He died in a battle with, with the Egyptians. Jeremiah and all the Jerusalem had mourned together at his funeral. His son, Jehoahaz, reigned just three months, but then he was de- deposed by the Egyptian pharaoh, Necho, uh, and then replaced by another son, Jehoiakim, who was a wicked king. Then the reign of Jehoiakim undermined everything his father had reformed. Idolatry, idolatry returned with a vengeance. Evil is now rampant. Wicked men are, are, are now placed in power. And this new king hated Jeremiah. And all that the evil Josiah suppressed resurfaced under Jehoiakim. Now obviously, you know, Jeremiah's looking at this and he's, he's discouraged. He's, he's confused and he, he's talking with the Lord about these people who are plotting to kill him. And he begins to wonder why God allows for these people to prosper. It just seems so unfair. You know, when you go through tough times, it's easy to complain. It's easy to say how unfair it seems. Jeremiah goes on in verse 2. He says, Lord, when it comes to the wicked, he says, You have planted them, yes. They have taken root. They grow, yes. They bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. And you have tested my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of the every field wither? The beasts and the birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. I mean, you understand Jeremiah's frustration. Again, there's now a wicked king on the throne who hates his guts. He's standing in opposition of all that Jeremiah holds dear. And the enemies were always there but suppressed by Josiah and they're now allowed to raise their ugly head and the people who had plotted against them secretly have now been given government jobs. 
And now, Jeremiah has labored to build for 18 years, has gone out the window. He now has nothing to show for his ministry but death threats and persecution. And he's asking why. Why? And I understand Jeremiah's heart. You know, I look around in our country today and I see what's happening and, and, and a country that was once respected Christian values and encouraged their, their, their advancements. I mean, it grieves my heart to see the evil that's not only accepted, but it's promoted. And it seems like America has the same total reversal of circumstances that, that Jeremiah experienced. You know, from, from Christian marriages to, to homosexual marriage, from biblical masculinity to feminism, from respect to, to life to, to abortion, from sobriety to legalized marijuana, from the sanctity of sex to the absence of morality. You know, and if you're a business owner and you refuse to give them to such a morality, your business will be ruined. And you, and you, you like, and I like Jeremiah, go, why? Why has God allowed this? But see, Jeremiah also felt the mixture of confusion and self-pity. The confusion was why God had allowed this change of situation, and the self-pity was it had been so easy for so long, why now the obstacles and the hurdles? Have you ever felt that way? Trying to, to serve God, trying to do what's right, and nothing seems to work out the way you'd hoped, and you, you wanted to bring healing to people, but now you're the one that's being hurt. This is what's going on with Jeremiah. Now, you may be expecting the Lord to give Jeremiah an answer to why the ungodly prosper. We know that David was concerned about the same thing when he wrote Psalm 2, and, and there the Lord said, don't worry about them, they'll get what's coming to them, paraphrase. But here in Jeremiah 12, the Lord's answer is basically, man, to toughen you up, Jeremiah, to make a man of God out of you. That's why you're going through this. Look at verse 5. It says, if you have run with the footmen, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. So I'm sure that this is not what Jeremiah wanted to hear. Nor what we want to hear. I think it's a, it's a tough pill to swallow. God glosses right over Jeremiah's original question. He doesn't even address why the wicked have prospered or when he'll judge them. What he does is he tells Jeremiah that, that you know, it won't, it's not going to get better. In fact, it's going to get worse. You're going to go through tougher times. In other words, if you think your ministry is hard now, you ain't seen nothing yet. The Lord is telling Jeremiah to toughen up. How can you run with the horsemen if you can't keep up with the footmen? You know, if you can't stay afloat in easy times, if petty problems tire you and threaten you and, and try to sink your faith, then how, is, how are you going to handle the floodwaters? You know, the, the Jordan River was at normal levels. Wild animals would stay close to the bank and a steady water supply them. But when the Jordan flooded, all the water was more plentiful and the wild animals were able to then roam the neighborhoods. They were a danger to the residents. And God's asking, how, how are you going to run away from them? That's what God is asking Jeremiah. If you're afraid of the stray dog, how will you handle it when the lion and the tiger suddenly appear prowling around your backyard? If you're sulking and, and licking your wounds now, how will you make it when things get really, really tough? See, rather than remove the obstacles, God wants Jeremiah to learn through them and deal with them. Yeah, he's upset. His family and friends turn on him, but soon the entire nation is going to be invaded by an angry army. It's time for, for Jeremiah to buck up, tighten his chin strap, but rather than easier, life is going to get harder and he needs to be the man that God has called him to be. 
And when I think about that, it reminds me of a story I heard years ago about a young man who was at the end of his rope, seeing no way out. He, he kind of dropped his knees and he prayed this prayer. He, uh, he says, I can't go on. I have too heavy a cross to bear. The Lord replied, my son, if you can't bear its weight, just place your cross inside this room. Then open that other door and pick out any cross you wish. The young man was filled with relief. Thank you, Lord, he sighed, and he did what he was told. Upon entering the other door, he saw many other crosses, some so large the tops were even visible. Then he spotted a tiny cross leaning against a far wall. I like that one, Lord, he whispered. And the Lord replied, my son, that's the cross you just brought in. See, rather than remove obstacles, God wants Jeremiah to learn to deal with them. You know, you've heard the expression, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. That's what God is telling Jeremiah. Stop being a spiritual wimp. Rise up in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lay hold of the blessing of God. Walk by faith. Resist the devil. Don't count your life near to you. Be, be a living sacrifice for Jesus. That trials and difficulties are going to come. If anything, it's going to get worse. But we need to, to toughen up and, and take on the motto of the Marines. Semper Fi, you know, always faithful. And remember that, that, that God knows how much you can handle. And he promises not to give you more than what you can handle. 1 Corinthians 10.13, the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He'll not allow you the temptation to be more than you can stand, but when you're tempted, He'll show you a way out so you can endure it, so you can get through it. If God thinks you can handle it, then you can handle it. So we just got to trust Him. Verse 8, He says, My heritage is like, to me, is like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me, therefore I've hated it. My heritage is, to me is like a speckled vulture. The vultures are all around all around her against her. Come assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. Here God employs three figures to describe his hurt at the hands of his beloved nation. Number one, they had become like a lion encountered in the forest. You know, they cried out against God. They provoked him by their sin and so he must hate them, meaning he must treat them according to their sin. Number two, Judah had become like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around were against her. Now, you know, some birds or hens are very mean. If you have a chick that's deformed in some, some way or looks different than the other birds, the other birds will, will peck it to death. That's where the term hen pecking came from. Not from wives, but, but from chickens. And, and that's the, the bird that is, you know, a bird that is odd in some way will be tech, pecked to death by other birds. So God is saying that Judah has become like a speckled vulture because they did not represent God to the other nations, but instead, fell into sin with them, so God would use other nations to discipline them. And then number three, Judah was a vineyard, God's vineyard. But they allowed themselves to be breached and trampled down upon and destroyed. And he's just describing his grief, his suffering brought about by Judah's sin. It would bring God no pleasure to judge them. Again, verse 10, Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Verse 11, they have made it desolate, desolate. It mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. The plunderers have come on all of the desolate heights in the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. The sword of the Lord here is meaning the Babylonians. They would be God's sword. Now, now what is sad is to see how far Judah had fallen. In the early days, remember Gideon? fought against the Midianites. He divided a small little army into three groups. In Judges chapter 7, verse 20, it said this, Then the three companies below, uh, the companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands of the, for the blowing, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. 
Israel had the sword of the Lord, used by God. Now that honor had moved to Babylon, and Babylon would fight against Israel. Why? Lord, look at verse 13. Because they have sown wheat upon wheat, but reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain, but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus is the Lord against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. So we have three of Judah's uh, regional neighbors, Ammon, Moab, and Edom. They're also invaded by the Babylonians and, and, and deported to Babylon. Now, verse 15. I've shared before in previous studies of Jeremiah that there, there, there are some of those verses where the clouds begin to part, the sun stops shining through. This is one of them. Look at verse 15. Then it shall be after I pluck them out that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. Don't you just love the mercy of the Lord? After they've learned their lesson, after they've, they've learned, I'm going to bring them back. And then this is just the promise of redemption. After the 70 years of captivity in the Babylon, God promises to bring them back. Then God says of them in verse 16 as we close, And I shall be, if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name, as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by El, by Baal, that they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. So if they've learned and they obey, everything will be made right. If they don't, you know, then it's going to be worse again. And, and Ammon and Moab and Edom were the chief importers of idolatry into Judah. And even the evil Moloch came from Moab. But when these nations return, the Lord is saying here, if they, if those, those heathen nations learn to trust in the Lord as the Jews learned to bow down to their idols, God will save them and integrate them among His people. I think it's a, it's a great example uh, for us as, as Gentiles. Even though the Jews were God's chosen people, they were not His only people. God had room in His heart for all people. And so that's what He's saying here. Man, if, if you love the Lord and you follow after the Lord, then you're going to be one of my people. Yet if they continue with their false gods, the true God will see to it that they're utterly destroyed. So we want to stay on the, on the right side. Being here tonight is on the right side, serving the Lord, getting into God's Word, hiding it into our heart, living for Him. Uh, let's keep it up. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for tonight. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, Father, You're such a gracious God so ready and willing to take us back as we just confess our sins. You're faithful, you're just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But Lord, you want us to live lives that are pleasing to you, so we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, you'll help us to do just that, to turn from sin, turn from those things that would seek to draw us away, and help us to turn towards you, Lord God. Help us not to have anything or, or any, anyone else that would take the place of our relationship with you in our lives. And Lord, as we go through times of difficulty and, and persecution and, and in the sense of, of just things being said to us that, that just are not kind words and, and, and Lord, really the enemy trying to get us to respond in our flesh, help us just to rest in your love. And Lord, as your word says, a quiet answer that turns away wrath. Lord, help us to give those quiet answers of your love and grace to people as, as they get upset, Lord. And, and Lord, help us to be that good example of what it means to be a follower of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your loving grace, Lord. Thank you for this night tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.